Our great God, we thank you for the grace of the Lord Jesus that opens our eyes and helps us to see you. And we thank you too for that grace and the work of your spirit, which doesn't just save us, but transforms us and helps us to see sin and to leave it behind, to repent and to keep believing, uh, to follow the Lord Jesus, the one who saved us day after day. So we thank you for that spirit's help and we pray today we'll understand it better so that we can cooperate with it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was in primary school, we used to have a series of books. I notice my kids have different series of books these days, but in my day it was Choose Your Own Adventure, where you read a number of pages and then it says, if you want to go this way, option A, go to page 27. If you want to go this way, that's option B, go to page 36. And you go through option A and then you follow that and then you get another option. And so through the book, the idea is that you are helping to decide how the story is going to go. You know, I think many people assume that life happens to them, that their life is being written, and they don't have much to say, perhaps, on how it all plays out. And sure, many things are out of our control, but the Bible presents us as very active players in our own story. The day... Uh, Day after day, we have new opportunities, new forks in the road presented to us. And we actually have an enormous say, particularly in the spiritual realm, about how our lives play out. So here you are at church today, you've made a decision. I think that's an excellent choice for your morning this morning, for your spiritual strengthening. This afternoon, you'll have different choices awaiting you and tomorrow and next week. Which paths will you choose and why? You might think of someone you know whose life has become a mess. Uh, Perhaps your own life has been a mess at different points. I think of two brothers that were raised in the same family. One brother made a series of bad choices through his life. As the years went on, his heart became harder Bitterness and anger increased, resentment, broken relationships, followed by um, dysfunctional family and a terribly sad state of affairs even today. Meanwhile, the other brother lived from the same family and continues to live trusting the Lord Jesus. He continues to pursue a humble heart and a soft heart towards his wife and kids. He's had hardships, but he's in so much better a situation than his brother. His real life and death adventure as he keeps choosing Christ's ways over the ways of the sin and the flesh and the devil. So we've already, if we're already Christians, and I assume most of us here are, how do we continue choosing the right path? Brother B, rather than the choices of Brother A. We want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant at the end of our lives, do we not? So what does good and faithful service look like, and how do we keep pursuing that? Well, in 1 Timothy 4, as we read over Timothy's shoulder, you'll be pleased to know that faithful service is not rocket science. It's not meant to be too far away from us. It's very simple, and we have the Spirit's help because God doesn't want us to miss it. 
So good and faithful servants, if you're following in the outline, pursue Jesus, pursue godliness, and pursue transparency. So firstly, pursuing Jesus, Jesus and the faith, we might say. First of all, I think it's important that we shouldn't be surprised that the good uh, the key to good and faithful service of Jesus will be to keep our eyes on Jesus himself. With the Lord Jesus comes all we need for a godly life. You remember Peter told us that as we were looking to Peter chapter 1. And last week, more poetically, we saw Paul assure likewise that in 1 Timothy 3.16, that godliness draws from the wells of the person and the work of Jesus. Great indeed, we read chapter 3, verse 16, is the mystery of godliness. He appeared in the flesh. So when you think of godliness, he, Paul takes us straight to Jesus. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. This is the story of stories. This is how we are to understand human existence and the world being in existence. This brilliant, glorious, divine adventure into humanity's despair sweeps us up into it. To live is Christ, says Paul. That we no longer live, but Jesus lives in us and we live in him. So friends, if this epic story doesn't excite you at all, pray that it will. There's no deficiency in the story but we can have eyes that, that fail to see very well. Call on God today. Wrestle with him. Ask him to forgive your hardness of heart, to moisten your eyes if they're dry, to lead you through those ancient paths of confession, contrition, devotion, consecration. Be willing to wash his feet with your tears, to weep at his cross like Peter, and say, never again will I forsake you, Lord Jesus. Forsake such a friend. You might rebuke yourself like the Pharisee Paul, counting yourself the worst of sinners, but one now saved by God's immense kindness. How can such realities not move us when we give our minds and hearts to them? So I wonder if, if, if I were to ask you, someone were to ask you, what's the love of your life? I wonder what reflex answer comes to mind. And I wonder, does Jesus come suddenly to mind? You may have become, or perhaps always been, merely a religious person, not necessarily a Jesus person. What's the difference? The difference is so stark, is, is as stark as Jesus' warning, when we would need him most. Depart from me, I never knew you. That's what's at stake of being merely religious. An older minister recently encouraged me, saying that through all kinds of trials, by God's grace and by God's spirit, he looks back and can honestly say, through some significant hardships in life, he says, David, I, I can honestly say the love of my life has been Jesus. And he's carried me through all kinds of things. What a good way to put the place that Jesus deserves in our life. I'm always looking for ways I can love God with all my heart, soul, mind and strength. This phrase helps me. That Jesus is the love of my life. Whether we're young, old, single, happy, sad. Jesus is the love of my life. 
Paul's mystery of godliness, the way to keep choosing paths well in life, is that verse 16, you don't graduate from Jesus. You grow warmer, healthier, inwardly happier as he becomes the love of our lives. I heard of one cricketer who's told his wife, I love you, but cricket is my life and it will always come before you. It'll always come first. Unsurprisingly, that marriage didn't go very well. And it seems so sad for that woman that something less precious than her came between them. But we, Christ's bride, mustn't do the same to our most faithful husband. Want to live well, then Jesus is the key. And inseparable from Jesus is the whole of Scripture that points to the Lord Jesus. What Scripture calls and what Paul calls here the faith in chapter 4, verse 1 and verse 6. Look with me from verse 1. The Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. That's not choosing adventure, that's choosing misadventure. Denying Christ has a demonic agency, a dark spiritual force behind it. Abandon the faith, Paul writes, verse 1. They follow deceiving spirits, things taught by demons. Or verse 2, their teachings come from hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared or cauterized as with a hot iron. They've lost sensitivity to what God's word actually says. Some spiritual leaders in our own day still insist, as Paul will go on to explain, uh, that it's wrong to deny marriage or to, to insist that people abstain from marriage. Uh, some in religious circles say that Christ's servants serve Christ better by abstaining from marriage and that to be a husband of one wife is to be a husband of the church. In the 16th century, Martin Luther, who had taken vows of celibacy, woke up to this distortion from the Bible's message when he left what was a very corrupted Roman Catholic church. It infuriated the authorities. Not only did he renounce his vows and marry, but he married a nun who had made the same vows. One of his first writings when becoming a Christian speaks of the freedom of the Christian, the liberation from the spiritual and physical bondage, the freedom of Christ and his gracious ways. These relationships, these things that were, verse 3, created by God to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. That is, I take it, prayers of thanksgiving informed by the scriptures, not by tradition, uh, whether it's ancient or recent, but informed by the word, guide and liberate our consciences. Word and prayer prevent addiction. Word and prayer prevent idolatry and other misuses of God's good gifts. And so we need people, the church needs people, good and faithful servants in front of the church and within the church, all holding on to the faith, pointing out when something's being added to it or something being removed from it when it's being misconstrued, whether from without or from within. And so Paul says in verse 6, if you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good minister, servant, deacon, it's the one word, 
of Christ Jesus, nourished on the truths of the faith and of the good teachings that you have followed. Put those terms together, you get good servant, nourished, truths of the faith, good teachings you have followed. The numerous forks in the road that could have been taken. Instead, the forks in the road from God are consistently chosen. Now, as you go around in church life, um, you start to realize that deviations aren't harmless. Just as the first piece of forbidden fruit was just a piece of fruit, wasn't it? But dominoes fall. Little deviations over distance make one far removed, actually, from being a good servant, nourished, truths of the faith, good teachings. You have followed. You have followed becomes you have not followed when tradition builds upon tradition. And that's the story playing out all around us. You may think of well-meaning Christians from your childhood, from five years ago, from one year ago, who no longer gather with God's people. Little deviations incrementally made, whether it's in thinking or in life. It's a sobering reality for pastors, where retention is tied to salvation. And it's a sobering message for us all, since we disciples are our brother's keepers. Imagine 150 such good and faithful servants of Jesus at DPC whose first love is Jesus and whose outlook for, faith, for life is the faith and no other. Now you might think your most zealous days for Jesus are behind you, depending on your age. You may think, oh, I was on fire as a teenager. I remember those years. Or my university years, it was just so exciting and I, I, was, I was so zealous for God. May have been, you think, oh, it was when we were a young couple, when I was middle-aged, when I had more energy. But Paul very much gives the impression that the choices most critical relate to your next steps. What would your return to greater zeal look like in this stage of life? To choose that very best adventure with the choices you make today and tomorrow. And Paul Paul is saying, friends, choose Jesus and the faith. What about pursuit number two, godliness? Picking up from verse seven, Paul writes, have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself up to be godly. Train yourself up. There's an active, intense activity. To be God-aware, godly. I, I take it it's a God-awareness in life. And so are we Christians who merely dabble with godliness? Or do we see ourselves as godly Christians? And that defines and shapes how we live our lives. I'm a godly Christian, therefore. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. What a great word for our culture. We know so well physical training is of some value, but we're missing so much of the blessed scenery if we think the bus stops there, as a lot of our friends in our culture do. That's the good news we've got. Don't get off there. Our souls are embodied for now, but bodies fade, and the soul lives forever on. 
physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. When the Top Gun movie was released just recently, 36 years after the first, a topic of conversation that was going around was how well Tom Cruise had aged over 36 years and now is a 60-year-old. A friend of mine aged around 60 conceded that Tom has aged better than he had. Um, Tom's salary, Tom's line of work, Tom's freedom of movement as he's running along the beach with 20-year-olds indicates that he is benefiting from physical training. But if we put Tom aside for the moment, if I were forced to make a choice, I'd much rather be in the shoes of someone who has pursued godliness for the last 36 years, even if suffering poor health, than to find myself with a healthy body and a neglected soul. In fact, often you find the most godly people live in the most uncooperative bodies. Decades may have taken their toll. The return to dust feels closer than their arrival from the dust. When the body is done with, God and godliness is all that will matter. So be Christ's godly servant and you have the best of both worlds, Paul is saying. The blessings of godliness now, of making good choices that prosper you and those around you, and godliness when it comes into its own in the coming age. Well done, good and faithful servant. And remember the next lines. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Let me share with you some of Spurgeon's comments on this. It's an extended quote, but I hope you enjoy it as I have. In heaven, how different will be the condition of the believer when compared to here? Here on earth, he is born into fatiguing work and suffers weariness. But in the eternal land of the immortal, fatigue is never known. On earth, eager to serve his master, he finds his strength not equal to the task or to his zeal. So his continual cry is, help me to serve you, O my God. If he's an active Christian, he will have much work to do here on earth, not too much for his will, but more than enough for his strength. O Christian, the long hot days of weariness will not last forever. The sun is nearing the horizon and will rise again on a brighter day than you have ever seen and upon a land where you will serve God day and night, yet with true rest from your labour. Rest on earth is incomplete, but there it is perfect. Here a Christian always feels unsettled as though he has not yet attained, but there all are at rest, have attained the summit of the mountain, and have ascended to the sweet embrace of their God. They can go no higher. O oh, work-worn labourer, just think of when you will rest forever. Can you conceive of it? It's an eternal rest, a rest that remains. Here my jo greatest joys grow dim, my fairest flowers fade, my finest teacups are drained to the dregs, the sweetest songbirds fall from death's arrows, my most pleasant days always end with the coming shadows of night, and my floods of happiness subside into deserts of sorrow. But there, everything is immortal. Harps play on without ever gathering rust. 
Golden crowns never tarnish. Eyes remain bright. Voices are unfaltering. Hearts unwavering. And every eternal being is filled with infinite delight. Happy day. Truly happy. Mortality will be swallowed up by life. And the eternal Sabbath rest will begin. Isn't that wonderful? Sometimes I think I'm alone in in struggling through life. Spurgeon shows how normal it is and how God has made everything right for us in the end. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Does it have your trust yet, this trustworthy saying? Does it have your acceptance yet? It is worthy of full acceptance. Godliness. Lastly, pursuit number three, transparency. Verses 12 to 16. Paul adds an interesting dimension here to Timothy's growth. Timothy isn't only called to make progress in these things. As he follows Jesus, godliness follows. But he is urged to make progress in community, to be transparently growing before brothers and sisters like you and me, because it benefits those watching on. Let's take a look together from verse 12. Firstly, he says, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young. It's not going around stopping people doing that, but more literally, it's let no one your youth despise. Uh, That is that don't see your youth as reason enough to be rejected. And haven't you found the best response to ungodliness is always godliness? Someone's being nasty, selfish. Well, that's out of my control. I can only be godly in response in this situation. And that's where Paul directs Timothy. Respond if they are looking down on you because you are young by setting an example for the believers. Perhaps the example will shine all the more brightly because he's being mistreated. And he mentions five areas that put flesh on godly bones. What does God bring to your attention when I ask, following Paul here, these five diagnostic questions with the Lord Jesus in mind? Are you worthy of imitation in speech? Are you worthy of imitation in conduct? Are you worthy of imitation in love? Are you worthy of imitation in faith? Are you worthy of imitation in purity? The second place transparency's value emerges is in verse 15. Be diligent in these matters of word ministry. We talk a lot about word, prayer, fellowship. We don't have a secret formula for church life. We just have a biblical formula of what God says we're to focus on. Word, prayer, fellowship. Be diligent in these matters of word ministry. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Now, as Australians, we may think it's, it's better to hide any progress or hide any strength that we might be developing. And it may be humble to hide progress. It may be humble to not talk about ourselves too much. But seeing progress can require a certain humility, a humility to be transparent with people, vulnerable even. 
in which we share what we're trying to leave behind, what we're learning, what we're struggling with, what we're working on. Never that we be praised, but so that the Lord Jesus working in us be praised. As a pastor over the years, these verses have changed the way I approach ministry in that I feel it's okay to share areas of struggle or things I'm trying to bring into my Christian life to help me grow rather than always keeping that locked away to myself. And so too, your testimony of growth, in which Christ gets all the glory, maybe just the message your friend is waiting to hear, needs to hear. Someone else who's a work in progress, who doesn't have their life all together like you, may be very much helped as you share your struggle. As a parent, I've tried to soften uh, my kids' hearts at various times when I'm having to discipline them for their sin. And so I let them in on a recent struggle I have with the very same sin that they're struggling with. In our interviews at church, we often ask the question, what are you learning about God at the moment? How are you growing in godliness? How is God growing you? And so I wonder if we as a community, what that would be like for us to normalise more and more letting each other know what the Spirit is doing in us as we seek to say no to distrust, no to sin, and yes to God in our various circumstances. What does it look like to trust God in times of doubt? What does it look like to trust God in resentment and despair, chronic anxiety or depression? How encouraging that can be to hear from one another, even if that struggle isn't ours at the moment. Paul concludes this section with a great memory verse that wraps everything up. The what and the why of choosing Jesus, godliness and transparency. Watch your life and doctrine closely, verse 16. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. By God's grace, you are saved, but he will activate your cooperation in that salvation and even use your cooperation for the salvation of those around you. Well, let's pray. Our great God, what wonders you have done for us in the Lord Jesus. We will never adequately be able to praise you, to respond adequately to you, to worship you as you deserve. And we thank you that you don't require that from us, that Jesus is our perfect substitute, that Jesus is our righteousness, that Jesus has come into the earth for people like us. And we thank you that our sins are nailed to the cross, that we have your Holy Spirit. That means we can say we are in Jesus and, and he is in us. And that we are citizens of heaven. And that we long to be like the one who saved us and gave his life for us. Father, help us to keep our eyes on Jesus. Help us to be increasingly godly. And help us to be increasingly transparent with our brothers and sisters. That you might get all praise and glory. And that you might save some through us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.